Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 112, and today I have Dr. Lewis James. How are you doing, Lewis? Hi, Lauren. How are you? <laughs> I got your name right. Yeah, got People it right. Don't know is, uh, this is like, this is, this is going to have a serious blooper roll, and I'm not even five seconds into the podcast. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's, uh, let's not hang on that one. Um, so I know a lot of, a lot of the listeners will, will be aware of, of, of who you are based on your um, awesome research that's out there in the field of, of hydration, uh, primarily, at least of, of date. Um, but before we uh, get into today's podcast and expand upon what we're going to talk about and why we're going to talk about, if you can just give us a bit of an overview as to, as to who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm based at Loughborough University. Um, I'm a senior lecturer here and you know, an academic, do a lot of research. Mainly the focus of my research is, is looking at how water balance um, influences exercise performance and human health. And we look at really the interaction between exercise and, and water balance. Um, I also do some, some other kind of research on, on um, things related to energy balance and particularly how nutrition and exercise interact to influence energy balance. Um, most of my interests, to be honest, have, have come from my, my previous kind of participation in and, and, and work in um, weight category sports, um, which is mainly why I have an interest in, in kind of hydration related issues and also issues of energy balance. Um, obviously come from the kind of making weight strategies that a lot of weight category athletes use. And that's transitioned into kind of more, more focusing on endurance, endurance based activities, to be honest, and more away from weight category sports. But that's where the interest came from. Yeah, thanks. I, I, you know, over the last um, five, six years that I have really, really taken a, a major interest in performance nutrition and, and sort of sourcing out who, who I felt were, you know, some of the leading experts in certain areas, which I, I, I have done either through my podcast, of course, which gives, you know, I can access people all over the world. So that's been rather interesting. And also through some of the educational programs we get up to Guru Performance, where we, we sort of try and specialize on, you know, on, 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 on this more, uh, more specific stuff relating to actual practice of performance nutrition, which is where my, my interests are here is to separate the science uh, from the practice, but, but enable that sort of translation, that journey from one to the other, which is why it's useful to have these, these, these conversations. And hydration... Um, is a particularly interesting one to me, partly because, well, apart from, um, you know, uh, breathing, um, you know, drinking um, water or fluid is of particular importance to our own survival. Um, but also when you start looking at sports, sports science, sports nutrition over the, well, the last sort of 10, 15 years, you'll be able to correct me on, on the actual history of, of this particular field. It, it has been, a topic of great interest for quite some time in, in however, what is only a relatively short period of time that are sort of, you know, the body of knowledge has existed in this particular field. I have had a few conversations on this podcast about hydration, for example, with um, Professor Stavros Kavoros um, and some of the other uh, guests where we've delved into uh, some aspects of, of hydration, but we've never really had the type of conversation that I'm planning to have today where we're going to look at hydration 
um, what we know, what we don't know, and, and most importantly, what is absolutely truly relevant to performance, um, where we also maybe need to look at that body of knowledge and think about, well, how much of, how much of that actually is, is relevant or not? So I think the first thing I wanted to quickly get into, because off air we just had a little conversation that I think is, is worth just tapping into, which maybe would help justify why we have these sort of science to practice conversations. And, and you can put it into the context of hydration and hydration research. Um, but, but why, you know, why do we need to be having these conversations and actually questioning or interrogating the evidence that exists out there? You know, cause one, one assumption made by people is well, it's published. So, you know, that, that's, that's a fact. Um, it's out there, you know, it's in the textbook, it's a fact. Um, but that may not be the case, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the great thing about science is that it's constantly, evolving and um you know the the idea that we don't really ever truly prove anything all we do is provide evidence for a hypothesis and you know the the evidence base is our best guess at the answer around that kind of research area um and for me that's that's something that's you know i've, I've done a small amount of practice certainly not as much as some of the some of the guests that you you've had on here but one thing that I really try and um, emphasize to our students here, whether it's undergraduate or postgraduate students, um, is that to truly be an excellent practitioner, I personally believe that you have to be an excellent scientist first, because as you say, practice is often translation of scientific information to the end user, which for most of your listeners will probably be an, an athlete, but you know, it could be somebody in a clinical setting. Um, you know, it, it could be a product that you're developing as a, a kind of, you know, person that works in the food industry, um, you know, and therefore translation of that scientific information is entirely dependent on your ability to understand the quality of the evidence that you are, that you are reading. If, if you can't read a paper and look at the methods and know whether this is important for your specific context, um, then you, you probably aren't able to do the job that you're trying to do. You can you know, you, you clearly need a vast array of other, you know, qualities and attributes to be a good practitioner. You know, you need to be able to communicate effectively. You need to be able to build relationships. You know, you, yeah. you need to know who the right people to, uh, who, who the right people to talk to at the right kind of times and opportunities are. But it all comes back to the science. And if you haven't got that, you know, underpinning scientific background, ability to um, interpret the quality of evidence that you're looking at, then you won't necessarily be able to translate that information and you won't be able to use it effectively. Absolutely. And uh, well, I, I like to, I like to describe science as a language and, you know, if we sort of take it into our own sort of day-to-day -day lives where we, we communicate in English in our case, or we attempt to communicate with other people who might speak other languages, but we try and meet in the middle with our respective versions of English. Um, but things get lost in translation on a frequent basis. I think one of the problems with science is it isn't, you know, when you read a paper or a book chapter, it doesn't necessarily have a Italian or French accent, so to speak. So we don't appreciate the potential nuances and the, you know, the translational issues and errors that, that can come across but also that the person who is communicating to us may not actually have 
you know, a, a, a high quality grasp of what they're talking about themselves anyway, which is what happens in the real world. We talk, you know, we ask someone for directions and they confidently say, you know, go down the road, take a left, whatever. And then you, you, you go do it and you go, sod it, he gave me the wrong directions. Well, that happens quite a lot. So in science, you guys are constantly talking about things like confidence, confidence intervals, confidence levels, like, you know, how much confidence do I have in this information? And, and that I find particularly interesting when you really start to learn more about science, how science is conducted, um, the crazy area that is statistics and how statistics are used to help try and understand what you know your your what the research you know has found or hasn't hasn't found is is something that presents practitioners the consumers of the information um i mean what we say consumers of course the consumers aren't just practitioners it's, it's the athletes or the the clients themselves some of whom will bypass the practitioner uh, and just try go straight to the source, but even you know whichever path we're looking at, there's a great deal of of misunderstanding, which is why I I enjoy doing these podcasts because we're actually able to talk for you know an hour or something, unraveling stuff and maybe looking yeah. at things a different way. Yeah, I think for me that you know I I don't really I do the odd bit of consultancy kind of practice every so often, but you know it, it, it's pretty much always on the topic of water balance, you know, and I'm brought yeah. into a team. Kind of discuss that that component of their practice you know i, I don't deal with the day-to-day -day, all the other stuff that you, you do with athletes when you are a practitioner um but but for me that that kind of interpretation of the the evidence is um and you know understanding how consistent the response is perhaps you know is it the sort of thing that everybody responds in the same way or do different people respond in different ways it, it's the reason why in in pretty much all of the papers that i publish now You'll, you'll find that the main data is always presented on an individual basis because means and standard deviations hide outliers. They hide the pattern of the response. They don't tell you about that. Um, if, you, if you present the individual data, probably for that key variable, so for me that would often be you know, performance or it might be you know, energy intake or you know, whatever the variable is that we're, we're looking at, our, our primary outcome. Um, I'll always present that and I always encourage students working with me to present that in, yeah. in individual kind of data points so that anyone, a practitioner, can look at that data and, and kind of say, well, you know, look, um, pretty much all of them responded in the same way. This is a pretty consistent effect. You know, it's probably worth trying, you know, or if the data is not different, is it really that four people, you know, had a real negative effect and four had a real positive effect from that intervention? And again, as a practitioner, you can look at that differently and go, well, look, this might be worth trying with, with my athlete, but you know, they might respond in, in one of two ways. I think you know, that the more information you've got in a paper, the, the better the practitioner's arm to be able to interpret that. Um, yeah. But then it always does come back to that kind of scientific underpinning. You know, if, if they haven't got that, that knowledge, that you know, scientific approach to their practice, um, then they're going to fail at that hurdle as well. Um, so yeah, so for me, it, it all comes down to being a, a, a scientist first and then choosing how you use that science. You know, some of us use it for, you know, furthering research in a specific area that we're really kind of you know, motivated to study. Um, other people will, will use it for kind of furthering performance of, of, of athletes. And uh, um, I think that's, that's, that's important to understand for me.
Yes, and you know we're, we're going to get into this uh, in, into hydration and performance in, in detail in a second. But you know, since you're talking about this, it is important that the listeners really understand this because, and I was just lecturing about this at the weekend. It, it you know, it it might come across to some as a bit boring or intimidating to have to try and learn, you know, upskill their knowledge in science or at least a competency in statistics and so on, because at the end of the day, it will influence your ability to differentiate quality from flawed information that, that you're using to inform your practice. So you might call yourself an evidence-based practitioner, for example, but if you're incompetent at, at sourcing and filtering the evidence, then you're a, well, you're either a irrelevant, you know, evidence-based scientist or you're a you know bad science uh, you know you know what i'm saying so you know but but the but ultimately that means you're going to give bad advice or at least not not the best possible advice and just to um finish this off with a a quote um from aska you which is basically um a nice summary on what evidence-based practice is and that is an evidence-based practice approach is the conscientious use of current best evidence in making decisions about nutrition to support the performance and health of individual athletes and teams. Now, I like that little quote there because uh, it's a massive field in itself, evidence-based practice. But the point being is that it is the conscientious you know, use um, of current best evidence. Best evidence is important there, um, as is making decisions. So it's important that people understand that we're, we're making decisions all the time as practitioners. But you know the, the, the one's ability to apply things like critical thinking and and choosing the right evidence at the right time or a word that i have i have transcended from context by the way i love the word context but what i really like is the word relevant is it actually relevant to what i'm trying to do and that's what i really hope people try and question but in but in order to determine whether it's relevant do you have the competency to determine whether it's relevant, I think is an interesting one, which of course what we try and teach our, our respective students, obviously. Um, so anyway, that could be another podcast, which sort of creeps into every podcast, but it is my obsession. So I'm not going to apologize. So um, let's get into the topic today then. So I, I sort of inferred earlier that what we're going to talk about is hydration and performance. It, it's, it's one of the areas that you're well known for doing research in. Um, let, let, let's, let's make a few, let's define a few things here. Cause I think again, what happens here is people start talking about these things and, and they don't really define what they mean by terms like hydration or performance, fluid balance or differentiate, you know, a normal person from an ill person, a sedentary person and an active person or an elite athlete. So m- maybe let, let's just contextualize this, uh, this discussion a little bit. So what, when we're talking about hydration, particularly as it relates to an athlete, what you know, what actually, what actually is it that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I guess the word is water, or kind of, you know, water balance, water content in the body. So it's the, it's the amount of water that um, an athlete would would have in their body. Um, their kind of their body water balance. Everything in nutrition is balance. It's the thing I like about nutrition is mm. you know. You have what goes in, what comes out, and you have the you know the balance in the middle. Everything can be brought back to a, a bank account for me. Um, you know, are you in the red? Are you in the black? Where are you at this moment in time? 
And so for, for hydration, we're talking about the balance of water within that athlete. Um, and that's important for me. And you, you kind of said earlier, Lauren, you know, how, how vital water is. It's, it's, it's probably the most essential nutrient, but also ironically is, is often forgotten as a nutrient. If I ask a class of nutrition students, name me the macronutrients, most of them would, uh, most of them would list carbohydrate, fat, protein, um, but very few of them would actually say water. In fact, I've been at international you know, conferences where we've had you know, eminent professors in the area sports nutrition you know not list water as a as a macronutrient but it is it is the largest macronutrient because it's the thing we we consume the most of every day and it's also the thing we lose the most of every day um you know we're talking in the in the kilogram range rather than the gram range um so yeah it's essential nutrient but also the most forgotten nutrient and that's how i kind of like to think of water as as almost a forgotten nutrient you know, it was only the last eat well plate, I think, that the, the, a glass of water appeared next to the plate. Yeah, that was um, nice of them, wasn't it? A nice little glass on the side. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I think most people know that it's pretty critical to survival, but maybe you, let's just make a point of that because, you know, j- just because we're going to talk about the impact of, of hypohydration in particular and and performance but to, if we take that to to extremes where performance would be just being alive perhaps well i mean just how extreme is you know it can hypohydration be and and to what extent does that affect you know health yeah i mean in all honesty in, in normal in normal life with you know a healthy individual um kind of dehydration or hypohydration is is not really an issue for many people um, e- even in the context of, of athletes, if we're talking about health and life, um, you know, and just purely, you know, really negative health effects of, of, of being in a negative body water balance. So uh, dehydration, hypohydration, generally in the context of exercise are used synonymously. Dehydration is, is a term actually in water, whereas hypohydration refers to a lowered state of body water. Um, but the process is pretty transient with exercise. People lose water generally when they exercise and then they recoup that after exercise. So those two terms are used um, synonymously. So I'll probably mostly use dehydration today because I think it's probably the easiest one to understand for most people. Um, So in terms of dehydration, there's estimates that have been made about, you know, viability of of life and certainly experience animal experiments you know old animal experiments where where there is some kind of real data to put to that uh, also in occupational settings military kind of settings it's been, it's been you know researched and and it is probably somewhere in the region of a 15 percent um loss of, of 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 body weight by water would, would probably be at the level that would be you know life-threatening yeah. um, but there are loads of negative health consequences before that before that um before that actually occurs um most athletes don't experience that level of dehydration um some might get close uh, maybe let's say 10 percent is probably where we would see some of the the highest levels of, of body water loss in in athletic settings um but those sort of levels of loss can occur in you know situations of diarrheal disease 
um, you know, somebody who's who's trapped in a very hot environment and doesn't have access to, to desert, um, you know, trapped in other in other locations, and, and in those settings, often, you know, dehydration is, you know, sadly what what causes what causes death. Um, but it, it doesn't really happen in athletic settings. Most athletes probably experience somewhere between a loss of one to five percent of body weight um, as dehydration, which isn't in and of itself um, life-threatening. Let's get rid of that schoolboy error. <laughs> right. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think um, that's the sort of level we experience. But the other, the other thing to think about, and this is why water balance is so important, because again, on the flip side, having too much water in some situations, you know, could also be life-threatening. Um, you know, and there's the life-threatening condition known as uh, hyponatremia, um, which refers to a, a low blood sodium concentration. But the consequences of that, when it is induced by very high water intake, you know, or a very high rate of water intake, is that um, if the if the blood sodium blood kind of concentration decreases, then that water is forced into the cells, um, and the brain being one of the areas that it's forced into, that of course can't can't expand and and again, that that can lead to um, you know uh, issues that, that do result in in some situations in in loss of life. Um, so yeah, getting the balance wrong is 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 pretty catastrophic for water. Um, but it is not that common to get the balance too wrong, in all honesty, in in, in athletes. So what we really care about is is whether that kind of more typical loss of body water that you see with athletes might have any influence on on performance or, or potentially health of of the athlete yeah um, and that's where most of the research has really focused you know i'm really i mean i've heard you lecture you've lectured for us at good performance um before of course but i've heard you lecture uh at a number of international conferences both in in the uk and, and in europe and um, one thing you do constantly come back to which i particularly like about your work is you are bringing us back to something that you sort of just inferred. And that is that perhaps part of the problem that we're getting into is, is that we're in some ways overestimating the need to hydrate our athletes, particularly, I mean, when, you know, when we're, for example, we're looking at football players, you know, who are of particularly low risk of, of dehydration. But it is one of those, I mean, I work a lot in football. And as, as, as most people know, I was at the World Cup last year. And one of the main reasons why I was, was asked to go work with the Egyptian national football team was because of Ramadan and they had major concerns about hydration, um, which actually turned out not to be a big issue at all. There were many other issues I had to deal with related to Ramadan and food intake and so on but it really wasn't about hydration specifically um but it, it is this problem where just because we have a strategy that sports science presents us with does it mean that we have to use it um but that happens all the time doesn't it, it, it i mean is that is that something that has constantly cropped up on your radar or is it something that that came up perhaps more as you started to do the research i mean i think um going into clubs and, and doing kind of hydration and, and, and sweat related testing is uh, it kind of made how apparent or made it apparent to me how much emphasis is put on that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I know in, in some situations, you know, people put 
you know, enforced thresholds, you know, above which a player won't train or a player won't, you know, compete. You know, and I've, see, I've seen that. And um, I just think it's a case of, you know, it's important to make measurements in sports science and it's important to inform your practice on the basis of measurements that you can take if you can take them. But just because a measurement can be taken doesn't mean that it should be taken. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it should be taken in that situation. And I think for me, that's where hydration testing really kind of falls into that um, category. I mean, if we if we look at questionnaire data that's out there in, in athletes, most athletes believe that dehydration impairs performance. Um, so by default, if you if you are assessing hydration status before that athlete is going to go and perform, and that might be an important performance, it might be a match, um, then you you perhaps risk actually influencing their performance by them believing that they are dehydrated because we know the the kind of power of the mind in in terms of you know forcing performance and um if, if somebody thinks that they're dehydrated when really they're not all they've done is they've produced a slightly concentrated urine sample yeah um, you know they, they've, they've 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 had a supplement that has meant that urine is a little bit dark and they perceive that darkness of urine as dehydration um then then that might have an influence on their performance as well um so i think what i try to do whenever i work with teams or individual practitioners is to encourage them to really think about when when they're testing and why they're testing you know the example i use is that um you know we all care about how much glycogen an athlete has in many situations okay some situations it's not that relevant or important but in many situations it is but we don't measure their muscle glycogen content before they go out on the pitch. You know, and what we do as practitioners is we do, we do our due diligence and we ensure that they've had an adequate carbohydrate intake for the time period over which we can affect muscle glycogen, for example, before, before exercise. And um, so I think the thing that we need to move towards is, is making adequate recommendations around water intake and how much somebody should be consuming on a day day-to-day -day basis to try and promote adequate adequate hydration um, at the start of any any performance that that individual is doing so you've referred earlier to the concept of a bank account and i use that as well myself i think it's particularly accurate uh, most people can you know connect connect with that and of course we with energy balance you know you're talking about um, energy balance, energy availability, um, you know, uh, terms related to that, like substrate utilization, substrate availability, that sort of thing, um, which, which of course we can apply to, to fluid balance and fluid availability and so on. Although the first thing that springs to my mind, of course, is when we're talking about glycogen balance and availability, you know, we're talking about a, 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 a quantity of that currency that's actually rather limited in, in the pocket, so to speak. Whereas with fluid balance, you know, that is a massive percentage of the human body, isn't it? Um, if we were to think from the perspective of, you know, the, the lens with which we're looking at these sorts of things, particularly with fluid balance, but also how focused we are at it and perhaps at the expense of the bigger picture um but what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean it's, it's really important to pick your battles isn't it i think yeah. um you know you, you only have so many hours or sometimes even so many minutes with an athlete 
particularly in perhaps a team environment. And um, if you're if you're spending that time on the wrong battle, and you're you're not you know fighting the battle that you 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 really need to be doing, and that and that could be focusing on you know measurement of hydration status when you know really you need to be looking at the recovery practices of that you know group of athletes, or you need yeah. to be looking at the you know the carbohydrate intake practices of that that athlete. Yeah. You know then yeah you're 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 not getting the bang for buck that you should be getting out of. Agree. Out of that time with the athlete. So yeah, I think it's really important. And again, that that comes back to this kind of scientific approach for me. You know, a scientist should assess the situation, work out what the the the, the components of most importance are, and how much time they've got to actually perhaps you know influence those things, and then go go for the important go for the important thing. Um, I, I agree. Have, you know, I've spoken to a number of practitioners who kind of said, you know, well, look, we want to do some sweat testing with the athletes. You know, and, and I have a fairly frank conversation with them sometimes, and say, "Look, I'm I'm, I'm not sure there's going to be much benefit here yeah. for you in terms of doing any sort of sweat or hydration testing with these athletes." It's like, "Yeah, great, we could come in. Yeah, you know, you could even pay us to do it. That's fine." But in reality, it probably isn't going to be that much value. And, and a really good comment that I've had back from a couple is, "You know, well, <laughs> they they seem to really engage with it. It seems to be something that athletes can kind of really engage with. So it's almost that kind of like." crumb to bring them into the the yeah. kind of the way they should be focusing on their nutrition and if you can kind of you know get them in with that you know let's look at sweat because we can see it let's look at you know what your urine is actually doing then you can start to get them more interested in the whole process of of nutrition and performance nutrition and and, and that could be the the start of you know being able to really rectify that individual's practice yeah so, yeah. yeah well I think that, there, there, there are some uses in that sense of course, and I think look, we live in a we live in a in a in an age now where I mean it's gadgets galore. You can test for almost anything. I mean, we're walking around with watches for the most part that are telling us stuff that we um, choose to believe that actually probably isn't that accurate. But nonetheless, it informs behaviour, and you know, um, or, or or worse still, actually, it's used to justify decisions. Uh, some of which are marketing-based decisions, which we can get into. Um, in a little bit as it relates to hydration products or protocols um, based on tests and that sort of thing. Um, but look, let's not, let's not suggest that hydration is, 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 is not important. So um, it, it's just, you know, as I always say throughout this podcast context is, 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 in, is the important issue in this discussion. So maybe you could give us some context here and talk about, you know, um, the bigger picture being, say, the average person's day or week or whatever, it, you know, in that regard, how hydration should be, you know, viewed, but to the athlete proximal to training, um, you know, pre, pre, pre-event, during and post-exercise, there may be some relevance there or not, depending on the type of sport and obviously environmental factors. Um, maybe you could just go down that, that little rabbit I think, hole. you know, kind of general water intake, hydration over the day. Um, you know, we're learning more and more about the, the, the health benefits of water. And, you know, my, my personal kind of take on the literature that's out there is that, you know, there, there, is, there is no negative to um, ensuring a good amount of water is consumed on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, consumption of, of water displaces kind of intake from other beverages that may contain, you know, things that aren't necessarily beneficial for health. Yeah. 
um, and, and energy balance and most of the issues that we have at least in the, the kind of you know western world are around energy balance and anything we can do to reduce energy intake in the general population is probably a benefit and, and, and consuming more water is one of those things there yeah. is no harm really to are, are you saying that truck drivers who are literally not moving don't need to drink their sugary sports drinks because it's got terms like gives you energy on it <laughs> exactly yeah and if, if we can get all of those individuals to drink more water they'll drink less of other things and that, yeah. that could be a real benefit from a health perspective you know there are other reasons um that water might be you know beneficial for health so um arginine vasopressin which is the main kind of fluid balance hormone um has been implicated in a, in a number of kind of diseases and there are associations in the kind of epidemiological literature between you know diabetes and type 2 diabetes particularly and, and, and high arginine vasopressin concentrations cardiovascular diseases there's a whole host of things that seem to be linked to having high concentrations of arginine vasopressin or most people probably know that as antidiuretic hormone um, adh so if you can reduce avp then again there may be some benefits on health and, and water is or water intake you know or water supplementation perhaps uh, is is one strategy by which you can can kind of reduce those concentrations uh, there are also benefits to passing a less concentrated urine so things like urinary tract infection and and some you know some things related to kidney function might might be benefited by a slightly higher water intake the result of which is a lower concentration of urine um, the, the negative side of that is you need to go to the toilet more often uh, which is is one of the kind of main probably barriers to to not drinking more um, so that's kind of your general general public I think we don't really have any good evidence on what is an appropriate amount of water intake for the general public and some of our research certainly is is exploring that at the moment but we're more interested in athletes and like you said when athletes consume fluid and how much they should should consume so in most athletic settings for me starting exercise well hydrated so what we would call you hydrated so with a normal level of body water is, is probably the most appropriate um, strategy um, then during exercise most of the guidelines that are out there are either on you know the side of drinking to thirst or drinking ad libitum during exercise or drinking to prevent a certain level of body water deficit the one that's commonly kind of thrown around is drink to um, prevent a two percent decrease in in body weight um, and i think whether it's relevant to follow one of those two strategies depends on the actual exercise in hand if the exercise is short and perhaps not in a hot environment then there's probably not any concern of of dehydration influencing performance small levels of, of of water loss seem to be buffered against pretty well um, if the exercise is longer and the environment is hotter or more humid perhaps um, then you're probably looking more at a kind of prescribed drinking to make sure that you don't lose too much water but also to make sure that you don't drink too much water because the longer the exercise is, the greater your risk of overdrinking as well. And overdrinking is is the main the main cause of hyponatremia that's associated with exercise. So for me, 
you know, knowing a little bit about somebody's fluid losses, if you really care about their performance, is, a, is an important thing. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of during. Um, I think it's a, as the answer to every question is, Laurent, it, it depends. It depends on the situation and it depends on the individual's rate of fluid loss. Um, but also it's being mindful. And, you know, I do a lot with our students where we talk about water losses and athletes. And I show them some real life data from, from athletes in a number of different sports. You know, where, where athletes are losing three to four liters of fluid per hour of exercise. And they might be ex exercising for, for two or three hours sometimes. You know, and I, and I say to the students, how, how do we maintain this person's water balance? Because if they're losing four liters an hour, you cannot drink four liters an hour. It's, it's not practical. It's not relevant for that situation. So saying to that athlete, don't get dehydrated is impossible. The only way that they can not get dehydrated is by not performing as well. Because the water loss is intrinsically linked to how hard they exercise and the raise in metabolic heat production that occurs with that exercise. So we have to be reflective that in, in, in many athletic situations, dehydration is almost inevitable. High sweat losses, low ability to consume fluid, maybe for practical reasons, i.e. they can't carry the fluid, or perhaps, you know, for something like football, that they, they can't actually consume fluid during the two 45-minute halves, um, unless the conditions are, you know, sufficiently severe. Um, or due to kind of comfort reasons. You know, it's not comfortable to tolerate the amount of fluid that would need to be consumed to replace those water losses. So in many situations, dehydration will occur. In those situations, it's about what can you do to mitigate any performance decrements that might occur? How can you prepare that individual to be ready to experience that? What can you do as a practitioner to, to perhaps train them nutritionally to, to um, experience uh, that, that kind of um, you know, situation? So for me, probably the, the most important time for water intake is period. And for me, with an athlete, post-exercise is the same as pre-exercise because pretty much one training session or one competitive event just feeds into the next training session. So post and pre are, are almost the same thing in my mind. Um, and it's making sure that they're replacing those water losses adequately between those bouts of exercise. Um, and that's where most of the focus should probably be for, from a hydration point of view for me. Yeah, excellent. So there's a couple of things there that I think are worth delving into. So I think I think one thing that, that people will be thinking about when they're thinking about the importance, the need to hydrate is when they start to think about those images of athletes in things like the London Marathon, you know, collapsing. And of course, you, you don't have experts commenting. You've got, you know, the, 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 you know, the journalists or whatever that are talking about the reasons why they've collapsed, which may or may not be accurate. But nonetheless, they're rather powerful scenes. Um, and you hear written reports about hyponatremia, which you've described. Um, but therein lies part of the problem is perhaps, you know, is the fear of, you know, that the, the, they're perceived um, risk of dehydration and what might happen is is why they're anxiously knocking back water as they're running around you know the event um, but then some people will come back and say yeah but that, that isn't so much about the fluid intake it's more to do with inappropriate fluid intake i.e without electrolytes and so on maybe you could just clarify um, 
and for those that you know this isn't a video but there was a swaggering of the head there which i think is this is what i'm trying to draw out of you is 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 people are rationalizing one way or the other but actually it's still probably irrelevant but but what what do you what do you have to say on that yeah i think um i mean marketing the internet everything is you know it's a powerful tool isn't it and that's probably very noisy tool yeah the biggest the biggest influencer of what a lot of athletes um whether they're recreational or whether they're kind of you know highly trained you know what they actually do that those are the things that are really influencing those individuals um so yeah i think it's it's as you say it's inappropriate fluid intake and the only for me the only logical way of preventing inappropriate fluid intake is knowing how much is appropriate yeah and the only way you can do that is to measure it yeah um so if you drink to thirst which as i said in most set- settings is actually what i would personally recommend you know drinking drinking to thirst um drinking ad libitum um if it's an, an hour and a half exercise you, you're not going to do really any harm with that sort of thing but yeah. if you're talking about four five six hours of exercise um you know and that that person um you know for, for whatever reason is predisposed to perhaps being very thirsty or perhaps having inappropriate um avp secretion during exercise so they might retain more of the water that they they consume um you know then then even drinking to thirst could be you know something that that, that results in a negative outcome either because of dehydration and as you say there there are links between dehydration and, and say for example you know heat related illness um, you know, being being well hydrated seems to lead to lower body temperatures for whatever reason. Um, I don't think we really want to go into the mechanisms here, but you know, it does seem to have that effect. Um, there, there, there are kind of you know negative effects of um, overhydration as we've talked about. And if you if you drink to thirst, you still risk the individual having one of those two two responses that are very very rare. This is the thing the media could do a little bit better is 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 kind of emphasize how rare those those um those situations actually are and, and almost remove the remove the fear around yeah. those sort of things yeah. what we need to do is 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 increase the knowledge of people yes you know, so how much is an appropriate amount to drink for them it's not a question that's easy to answer and you can't just pick a number out of a textbook if you look at you know um, recommendations for carbohydrate intake during exercise they're within a relatively narrow window even on a day-to-day basis but you, you could have two athletes doing and you'd know this i guess from probably working with you know the, the teams that you work with you could have a team of athletes doing the same training session and pick two individuals you know i'm thinking like well-trained football players let's say for example doing exactly the same training session wearing exactly the same clothes in exactly the same settings and you have one individual who's losing 600 milliliters per hour and you have another one that's losing nearly two and a half liters it's almost fourfold difference in fluid intake if i make the same recommendations to those two individuals you know they're going to be inadequate for one of them um and that's where you 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 really can you know do better with with hydration because it is such an easy thing to measure um you then asked about kind of the electrolyte content of the of the drink i mean um pretty much all fluids that we consume are um, what we call from, from a sodium point of view hypotonic so they have a lower concentration 
than, um, than the body water. So anytime you are drinking, you will dilute the body water pool. So you will, you know, reduce sodium concentrations, you will reduce osmolality um, by default. Even when we compare the um, concentration of drinks that are consumed, you know, so if we take typical sports drinks, they tend to be around the 20 millimole per litre sodium concentration. Water is, is completely negligible. Um, and many other fluids are between between those two. Um, and I guess water and sports drinks are probably the things that are consumed on in the largest amount during events. Um, a typical sodium concentration in somebody's sweat would probably be around 50 millimoles per litre. So you might say that the sodium in some drinks might offset the decline in blood sodium and osmolality and therefore perhaps help to prevent some of those negative consequences but if you're drinking enough water for 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 that you know to have those negative effects of over drinking then you know there, there probably isn't going to be too much protection there i don't think um so so yeah i think it, it, it's a it's a recommendation thing as well um yeah yeah but you, you know, see that's availability where... it's the availability and the you know the onus on people to drink that might have those those effects so what what's clearly what clearly we're seeing here there is although although there is a fear of dehydration and we, we'll get into that in a minute because there's a difference between dehydration and relevant de levels of dehydration obviously but you know as with all things in our world um you know there's a product that's being created for everything um to meet these these fears that people have one way or the other um so you know whether you're worrying about dropping dead on your marathon um from dehydration or whether or not you know you're you're just trying to um you know reduce the uh, uh you know the perceived impact of of dehydration there you know that there's a there's a few things there that um that obviously you've discussed and, and we're sort of now questioning the relevance of that um but you have mentioned on many times i've heard you talk about this when we're talking about hydration and, and performance is we're concerned about the negative effects of dehydration we're concerned about the potential risks of hyponatremia but what we don't tend to think about so much is the negative effects of trying to hydrate, particularly on performance. Um, uh, without saying it myself, what, what, what are you referring to there? You know, what are the, what are the consequences of drinking lots of fluid um, that you might not actually need? Um, and how might that impact, you know, performance? Yeah. I mean, for sure. The, 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 the first one is obviously going to the toilet and all you have to do is, is go to most people with normal kidney function. I mean, we all, you know, you go to a pub and have a couple of pints and you know, you think as soon as you don't do break, that sort of thing. Can't stop, can't stop. <laughs> well, no, not, not now with two young children. Yeah. Um, yeah but you know, when, when you do, you, it comes back out and that's yep. the, the, the thing you notice at endurance events. You know, look at the look at the queues at the Portaloos. You know, look at the number of people that are stopping on the side of the road to, to go to go to the toilet. And I mean, in a in a laboratory controlled study, that sort of thing perhaps might be cancelled out. You know, maybe they stop the, the timer while they go to the toilet, or you know, who yeah. knows? 
So pounding in fluid at a rate that is perhaps un, unreasonable and unfeasible doesn't really you know, have, have such an effect. I mean, I, I wish that studies would report that, you know, yeah. what goes on. And certainly, you know, in the studies that we do, we, we always kind of say who, who goes to the toilet and how many times they've gone. Um, so I think that's the first one. And if you stop to go to the toilet and it takes you a minute and a half, you know, maybe that's you not breaking your three hour marathon or, you know, whatever your, your goal is for that, that event. Yeah. Um, and it, for an elite runner or cyclist, for example, it's, it's not really an option in, in, you know, a pressure situation. So, I mean, that's the first one and most obvious for me, but the second one is, you know, issues at the other end. If you've got to carry that fluid on your person, um, in your stomach or whether you, you actually, you know, you carry it on your bike or, you know, if you're running, you have to actually carry the fluid with you. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not practical. Um, and there are comfort issues that if you if your stomach isn't comfortable while you're running or cycling or, or exercising or whatever you're doing, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna push so hard. Yeah. Again, that that's another effect on performance that um, will really kind of damage what that individual is trying to do. Well, you know, in, it, when when we're thinking of um, particularly an elite at the elite end of the performance spectrum, we talk about marginal gains, right? So even just minuscule things can make a difference between podium or not. And yet, um, and you'll correct me uh, on this, but if, if I believe roughly one litre of water is what, about a kilogram in weight yeah. or something like that, yeah. roughly? Yeah. I, I mean, that's pretty spectacular. Even, even if we're just, if we're talking about, say, a football player running around with a kilogram or more um, of weight that they don't even need and how that, you know, just affects their ability to rapidly change direction, that sort of thing, you know, risk of injury, um, increased or, or, or yeah, considerably less efficient generally more, you know, time to fatigue, you know, it, it gets worse and so on. But then I think, crikey, but what the, the, ult, the, the endurance or ultra endurance athletes that are going for tremendous amounts of time and distance who are carrying weight that they don't necessarily need. It makes you realize that actually, if we understand this correctly, that it could even be strategically beneficial to, um, to not necessarily carry a full load of water um, as long as it's not going to have a relevant impact on performance, which is my sort of segue into what we're sort of at the end of what we can have time for this. But, but, but in that mindset, what actually then are we talking about? Uh, I know in the papers that I've read, um, you know, you're looking at, at the knowledge base talks about 2%, 3%, you know, um, losses um, that will actually start to have an impact on performance. There's been some questions about how that has been arrived at and whether or not that actually is the case or not, which you could unravel, uh, unravel for us. But the take home from this, I think, needs to be, you know, what actually is a relevant loss of, of fluid in the body as it relates to performance yeah yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm relatively critical of the body of evidence that is out there mainly on the basis of the design of the studies that have have gone into this kind of body of literature so when when you look at hydration as an, as an area that sport and nutrition has has looked into and researched pretty much and you know the the earliest studies were actually in the 1940s mainly in occupational settings um, you know, so, so we're talking about a body of literature that is in excess of 70 years old, 
you know, incorporates hundreds and hundreds of scientific investigations. But other than a handful of recent studies, all of those studies are, are critically flawed. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I was going to say, that's I a hell of a statement. In the, of, <laughs> in the process of saying yeah. that, I do criticise my own work as well. Yes. Um, but they're, they're fundamentally flawed by design because, you know, at the centre of um, particularly sports nutrition research and when we're looking at performance, we have to remember that performance is partly a behavioural variable. You know, as a physiologist, by training, you know, I like to think that physiology is what drives, you know, changes in performance and changes in physiology are, are relevant there. Um, but really, someone on a bike, running on the road, trying to get to that header or that tackle, you know, they make a choice as well. They, they make a decision, you know, conscious or unconscious, whatever it is, um, whether to try harder or not to try harder. So there is a behavioral component to, to performance. And, and we can, you know, we can evidence that looking at a lot of the placebo kind of study work that has been done in performance. You can exert placebo effects on people's performance in, in the lab and outside the lab. So you, you, you have this, you know, issue in the hydration literature in that the design of largely all studies do not blind the people doing the actual experiment. So if we have this knowledge base that's available in the public eye, that dehydration has a negative effect on performance. And that's been something that has been known and, you know, discussed in the public eye for, for you know, decades. That means, and, you know, you ask somebody, I ask a, a room of students, you know, does, what does dehydration do to performance? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral? You know, the vast majority of people will, will say it's a negative effect. You know, so that's the common perception. So if you then put somebody and enroll them into a study where you're going to measure their performance in either a dehydrated or a, a, a euhydrated or a well-hydrated state, and then use interventions such as drinking or not drinking during exercise, or drinking or not drinking for 24 hours, or sitting in a sauna and sweating out lots of you know you know um, body water to reduce you know hydration, or giving them a diuretic where they can you know feel and see where they are excreting large amounts of urine, um, then you're setting them up to know that they are dehydrated when you've made them dehydrated. And therefore, we can't necessarily trust the data that says that dehydration impairs performance in those settings. And that's really where kind of my journey of performance and hydration really, really started, um, was trying to unpick whether there really was an effect i kind of almost said look we, we need to almost forget about all the previous literature that's ever been done which you know is some really good research and there's some really good mechanistic data out there but the performance arm of it um is 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 not necessarily of of that much use because of these you know critical potential critical flaws in the literature and that's what we started doing a few years ago we started to try and um you know design methods to be able to blind people to when they are hydrated or not um, and that's what our kind of recent research has really been trying to focus on um, so in that kind of area we've done two two studies that are published so far um, both of which using the same technique um, and what we do is we we place a, a nasogastric feeding tube um, into somebody's stomach directly into you know through through either their nose or through their mouth um, into their stomach 
that allows us to deliver water directly to their stomach um, and um, and by doing that we can uh, as well as using some some kind of you know cover stories we can get the person who's exercising not know whether they're dehydrated or hydrated um, and so we published one study in 2017 um, where we, we used this with a group of recreationally active individuals. We looked at cycling performance um, and interestingly, and in opposition to our hypothesis, actually, which I think is quite important to state, we, we hypothesized that once we remove knowledge of somebody's hydration status, that dehydration would no longer impair performance. Um, we did that because of the results of some of our previous work where we'd shown that you can and therefore we thought that a lot of the effects of dehydration were probably psychological in nature and if we remove the knowledge of being dehydrated we would also remove any decrement in performance um, but actually we were wrong which I think is a nice thing in science you know uh, you, you can go in with a hypothesis and um, come out with something else um, and, and, and we actually saw that every person in that study uh, performed worse when they were dehydrated. But importantly, they didn't know they were dehydrated. Um, so that provided evidence that dehydration did. And it was the first study, actually, I believe in the literature that has provided solid evidence that dehydration impairs in endurance performance. We then followed that up with a group of well-trained athletes and, and we, we showed the same effect. We replicated that effect but we went one step further we had two groups one that either drank or didn't drink so they knew whether they were dehydrated or hydrated drip tube in and we put it into their stomach again um, and so they didn't know they were doing a hydration experiment and in the two trials they didn't know they were dehydrated or, or, or hydrated um, and we showed the same thing again that their performance was worse when they were dehydrated and that was what we had hypothesized um, but what we thought was that the group that knew their hydration status would show a larger decrement in performance compared to the group that didn't know their hydration status, i.e. those that had knowledge of whether they were dehydrated or not um, would uh, show some sort of uh, placebo or nocebo effect that would result in a greater decrement to performance. Um, but again, we were wrong. <laughs> And they, they actually showed an identical response to the group that knew what was going on. And that is actually a really, really important finding for me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in self-promotion and shouting about the research you do and things like that. But for me, it's, it's probably the, the, the most significant finding um, that, that I've had for a research study because of the implications, because of the fact that what we've done is actually, we've said that this last 70 years worth of research where all of these researchers have been putting in all of this time to try and look at how hydration affects performance. This, this one study that we've just done shows that actually a lot of that research is okay. And you know, whether the athletes knew or didn't know that they were hydrated probably didn't have an effect on their performance. The caveat being that we looked at a dehydration level of 3% body mass. We looked at endurance performance in males in a hot environment. So what we can say is that from that study, if you're doing endurance activity and probably cycling is 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 the uh, is the one that is most affected. If you're a, if you're cycling in a hot environment and you're male, dehydration of over three percent body weight impairs performance. 
any other situation and the honest truth is that we don't actually know whether there is an effect of dehydration we can we can have a hypothesis we can have a guess about it we can use evidence to inform that you know opinion uh, but the studies that have been done don't don't necessarily support us to be able to make a strong conclusion that's amazing isn't it when you consider just how much as we talked about earlier how much time effort and money is spent on the assumption of the opposite of that statement <laughs> exactly exactly and i think um you know yeah. that's not to say that i think that dehydration won't impair performance in those other areas yeah. i think actually the, this study for me kind of um you know probably suggests that it will yeah um, and i think probably actually the the, the the recommendations and the numbers that are out there are probably fairly solid you know two to three percent body weight loss as dehydration will probably impair performance in, in a number of settings but we only have hard evidence in my view for endurance performance in males specifically cycling in the heat um, so there's a whole load of other areas that really need to be looked at in in, in detail um, and i think for me that's the the, the biggest uh, i guess myth or kind of you know issue with the area of hydration and, and sports sports performance um, so yeah and, and that's what we're continuing to try and research and continuing to try and you know, unpick those relationships yes well you know as as i constantly mention you know particularly in the field of sports science but especially within the subfield of sports nutrition you know the, the the evolution of of our body of knowledge is you know it's it's so young it's still a baby really isn't it and we're still got so much to learn and i think what we're trying to do here is just warn people both researchers um you know those continuing to 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 contribute to the body of knowledge to be mindful of this but also to us as consumers practitioners athletes and so on um just to be a little bit careful with the body of knowledge that does exist and because it isn't necessarily what we think it is um completely and i think one of the problems and this isn't something that's exclusive to hydration is that we tend to polarize opinions in 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 science and research yeah and um that's done in a lot of studies so we'll look at very extreme examples so we'll look at not drinking at all versus you know drinking everything to replace what's lost but there's a whole continuum between those two possibilities that probably most athletes would be somewhere on that continuum yeah um so for me this is in terms of my research and, and, and hydration and performance, this is set, setting the foundation as to whether it's something that's even relevant to look at. Um, and I think the research that we've done has shown that it is something that's relevant to look at. Yeah. Um, the, the important question now is, you know, in what situation, in what setting is it actually relevant? Yeah. Um, that's the thing that starting to, to try and, you know, unpick now. Um, so so Lewis, so yeah, I, I, clearly what you're saying is, is it almost certainly is important, but in only realistically certain areas is where it's more likely to be relevant. Bearing in mind, there's a lot of other things that we could be dealing with, which perhaps might have more bang, bang for buck. So just to draw this to a close then, we, we, you know, cause people have probably had their minds blown open on some of this. So uh, we don't want to leave them hanging uh, uh, without some sort of interim solution. So in your mind, in an unbiased opinion, but cognizant of what we do and more importantly, what we don't know, there's many kinds of sports. 
that exist out there, many sorts of things that recreational athletes will spend time on training. They're all have, you know, their obsessions with hydration. What, what are the areas then that we, yeah, we probably should be spending higher levels of concern over hydration over what, what would, what would those areas be in your mind? I think the, the area for kind of real concern is the, um, you know, the endurance athlete, yeah. um, particularly in, with the recreational athlete. With, with high performance athletes, I think all athletes hydration is relevant for. Yeah. Um, you know, getting that balance of hydration right or wrong is something that could influence their performance. I haven't really talked about it, but the, the, the most interesting thing in the hydration kind of literature and the research is you can take 10 different individuals and induce a 2% body weight loss in all of those individuals. And in every single one, it will induce a very different effect on their performance. For some, it will dramatically reduce it. For some, it will have virtually no effect at all. So that suggests to me that there's an, an individualized approach that is needed. Um, yeah. you know, and I think really understanding who that individual you're working with is, is important there. So that's the, the elite end, you know, but you can take that individual approach in most elite settings. Um, in the recreational athlete, I think it's, it's the endurance sports that, that are most, most important. Um, I would encourage most athletes to drink more on a daily basis, um, you know, at, at, at least 500 to 1,000 mils with, with every meal is, is a good starting point. If you have it with every meal, you're spreading it out over the day um, and then, you know, sipping on drinks and having our other beverages that we have on a daily basis that are nothing to do with hydration, things like coffee and tea um, that, that will contribute to, to water intake. But if you have that, you know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 meals with every, every meal that you consume, and you're assuming you have three meals over the day, you'll get close to two to three liters over the day, and it will be spread out. Um, and then the additional beverages will help to top up body water. Um, then it's just managing what they do during, during exercise. And, and, and if it's a short bout, not worrying too much. If it's a long bout of endurance exercise, then that's where you, you need to make some measurements. And the nice thing with hydration is that it's very, very easy to measure. As you said, one kilogram of weight loss is equivalent to approximately one liter of water loss. There are caveats in there, but we won't worry too much about those. Um, so you can weigh yourself on a set of scales before and after exercise, wearing you know as little clothing as possible, hopefully having not gone to the toilet during uh, exercise. And, and you can get a good measure of how much sweat you will lose during that given exercise scenario. Um, and knowing that is important to making sure people don't underdrink or overdrink. Um, yeah, great. I, I actually, I found during the World Cup, I did a lot of before and after training session, weighing sessions and so on. And I, that actually, there was two benefits there. Firstly, it, it, it helped me understand um, what was happening to the players. And it was, you know, for the most part where we were, we were training during our camps was pretty hot. So it was, it was useful. But like you said, was the individual variation was astonishing. Um, so that enabled me to actually keep tabs on that. And I started to, to customize my hydration approaches per individual, but also it actually, you know, as we say, out of sight is out of mind. Just going through this process constantly reminded them of what their own personal situation was. And I found that that was more yeah. useful than anything. 
Um, but I know that could be another rabbit warren, a rabbit hole to go down. But um, I, I do want to, because we really, I mean, we've, we've spent more time talking than I thought we would, which is always the case, of course. Um, but let's just have a quick chicken or the egg sort of conversation, because we're, we're, we're talking about fluid intake. Um, you've referenced fluid output, but of course, the, the, the sweat secretion is obviously, well, high rates of sweat secretion is, you know, uh, it's all involved in thermoregulation and so on and so forth. That was not the point of this podcast was to get into that. And I got into that in a previous podcast before. But the, the constituents of sweat itself, the, 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 the salts, the electrolytes, I know that there's a sort of a trend now to have personalized um, approaches to dealing with, you know, electrolyte levels, different products will claim that their product is, you know, is a, is a more intelligent um, hydration support product based on, you know, their unique bespoke design, or even there are testing methodologies that are creeping into the marketplace, either with high tech gadgetry or um, I've seen various other things, you know, where you start doing taste tests and various, I mean, there's some interesting stuff going on out there, but again, I use the word relevant and evidence-based, uh, you know, where are we on that stuff? You think? Yeah, I think the, um, the, one of the things that I have advised different athletes and teams on is, is kind of salt losses in, in and to frame that. And when we say salt, what we're really talking about is sodium chloride. Um, Cause of course there are many different sorts of salt. Uh, we're talking about sodium and chloride losses that happen during it exercise and it is another area where you have huge variation between different individuals you know so again if you take a, a group of elite football players you might have anywhere from you know 15 to 20 millimoles per liter sweat loss all the way up to 70 to 80 millimoles per liter so again you've got something that's got perhaps a four to five fold variability between different individuals there's additional variability in that's introduced due to sweat rate because of course concentration of something is you know also dependent on the rate of loss to determine total losses and again you can get larger variation in the, in the total amount of salt that is actually lost by an, an individual um, so I think it is relevant in elite populations to know what somebody's sweat salt losses are you can plan their recovery better mainly because we know that you probably won't recover water balance if you don't recover salt balance those two things in the body are intrinsically linked you know the sodium and the chloride hold the water in the extracellular space if you lose large amounts of sodium chloride and you don't replace it you're not going to retain that water that you consume so it is important and relevant to know what's probably not important in my view is replacing that during exercise so I, I think that the most important thing for exercise <coughs> hydration is, is consuming a drink that is palatable to the individual and not necessarily um, a drink that contains a certain concentration of, of sodium to replace what that individual loses. For me, the most important point and place for rehydration and recovery of salt losses is in that post-exercise period. That said, if you've got somebody who's got very, very high salt losses, any salt you can get into them is probably going to be a good thing. So therefore, taking all those opportunities to increase, increase sodium and salt intake is, is going to be beneficial for, for that athlete. So if they can tolerate, and we talked about taste, this, 
massive variability in somebody's you know uh you know salt thirst or salt appetite and the, the how they perceive perceive salt uh in, in in solutions so if the individual can tolerate it then great uh, but if they can't then they're probably going to reduce their fluid intake and you're just going to work end up with with worse fluid balance whether it's something that's individualized for them or not uh you know and we and we do see athletes with very very salty sweat yeah and um and, and and those individuals will will really struggle to you know drink drinks that contain that much salt so i think the onus had to be put on post-exercise had to be put on the meal fluids are better retained when they're consumed with a meal it's easy to supplement salt with a meal you know you can consume soup that has very very high sodium concentrations you can you can put salt in your pasta when you're boiling it you can you know have salted butter you can add salt to pretty much every food you can consume with, with very kind of little uh, negative effect on taste yeah. whereas you can influence the taste profile of a drink that somebody consumes so do, one thing i take from that then um then is it may be let's get less worried about the specific sort of you know micro thinking micromanagement level of the actual electrolytes and so on you know, during exercise and we don't necessarily need some customized formula post exercise because all of the, cons all, all of the, the building blocks, if you like, are going to be provided in the post exercise meal. So yeah. from a food first mindset, which is, you know, I'm a big proponent of the food, food first approach, um, is that actually the body's going to be able to sort that, sort that out for itself assuming you're eating a high quality yeah. exercise meal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing that I say to um, anybody that kind of says, you know, can you come and do some, some sweat testing with our athletes? I say that, you know, for most athletes, it, it, it probably isn't that relevant, you know, and that is the recommendation that I write on a lot of the feedback sheets to the athletes, you know, don't need to worry too much about salt intake. Yeah. You know, salt concentrations low overall, overall salt losses are low. It's not a concern. Don't waste your time really yeah. thinking and focusing on this. Talk about carbohydrate, talk about your kind of spacing protein intake, talk about recovery. But probably for every team of, I don't know, 20, 25 athletes, there might be four or five that it is relevant for. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's the real benefit of doing testing is you can help to identify those individuals that are potentially at risk of. Of, yeah. uh, of salt deficit and those are the individuals that you do need to target additional intake with whether that's before possibly during or after exercise merely from the point of replacing their salt losses yeah. not because they need to be replaced necessarily before or during but just to get a little bit more in and if you know who those people are and you can identify them then you know you can get more bang for your buck with with those individuals sure. so that's where i think it, it is important to know sometimes yeah. Um, so, so it's also important to know that it's something that's not important with that athlete. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. So really we, we are saying at the elite end of the spectrum, most likely this might be relevant and then that needs to be dealt with by appropriately educated, competent practitioners. Exactly. The only other place that it, it perhaps is important and, and this isn't necessarily on an individualized basis, but we know that if you add salt to water you affect better rehydration so less of that water comes back out yeah so by adding salt to water you can reduce the amount of urine that is produced during exercise and that means that perhaps you only need to drink 
a litre to get the same benefit that you might have got from a litre and a half of a very dilute drink. Right. So you can change the constituents of a drink to to benefit, or as we said earlier, getting bang for your buck, you get more bang for your buck from the drink, yeah. potentially by having salt in it. Less trips to the toilet, you slow down less, or you stop running less, or you stop exercising less. Um, you perhaps feel a bit more comfortable. You know, if you're a footballer and you can't come off until half time, you've got maybe 50 minutes you've got to be on the pitch for. If you're, if you're busting to go to the toilet for the last 20 minutes of that 50, then you're probably not going to perform that well. Yeah. Um, but if you can mitigate that by having a little bit of salt in the drink that they consume, then again, that, that might be a benefit. So that's the other situation that it could be a positive. Brilliant. I'm not convinced that needs to be individualized. Yeah. Well, look, no puns intended, but uh, this has all been food for thought, hasn't it? And uh, increases the thirst for knowledge. Ba-boom. <laughs> um, listen, I think it's time we go and have a pint and let everyone uh, uh, process everything that we've been talking about. Um, I'd love to keep... There's all sorts of things I keep thinking about as we're doing this, but we just, you know, we, we really can't... Um, can't keep going mainly because i have to go get my kids <laughs> from from nursery as i'll get shot and there'll be no more podcasts so it's to- totally selfish um but i really appreciate your time um it's been a fascinating conversation i always enjoy having these chats with you um and i look forward to reading more of your research as it's coming and uh, hearing you speak on the circuit and so on and so forth um Speaking of that, you know, if people are interested in your, your, your research and what you're up to, what are the ways in which people can come find your work and you? They can find me on Twitter, so LJJ or at LJJ underscore nutrition um, or email. If you want to email me, my work email is l.james at lboro.ac.uk or just go into Google and put Lewis James Loughborough and I'll, I'll pop up. So will pop up, brilliant. Yeah. Pleasure yeah, to I'll talk put, to Lawrence. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no, thank you so so much. I'll I'll, I'll make sure I link things like ResearchGate or Google Scholar um, and uh, some some of the relevant papers from today's discussion. Um, uh, and uh, you know there are previous podcasts on related topics, so I suggest people have a look at that and go to GuruPerformance.com to check out previous podcasts and also if you really like what we're talking about here there are sort of deeper conversations and even some lectures by lewis on our on our diploma in performance nutrition program that you guys might find of interest i of course am laurel bannock and i look forward to bringing back another episode to you in the very near future take care everyone